Hey folks, it's John again from Is for Alcoholic. Today's conversation is with Dana Copeland. She is a writer, mother, sober friend who I met this summer through the Yale Writers Workshop. And both of our pieces had to do with sobriety and with struggling with alcoholism, both in ourselves, in our families. She was kind enough to share her time and her story and talk about having what we call a high bottom uh, and how this doesn't really diminish often the suffering and pain that we go through as alcoholics. And it was really great to catch up with her. It was great to hear from her. And um, I look forward to hearing from her again and talking about writing and sobriety and all of the good things that bring us where we are today. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dana Copeland. I like the shirt, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't get to wear it anywhere else. <laughs> right. So, um, well, first, Dana, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks um, for having me. I, um, it's interesting because we got to know each other in a fairly, in a fairly intimate way, even though we've never met in person. I know it's pretty weird, but it's, it's right up my alley. I like that. Um, but you and I met uh, through an online writing workshop. Yes. And um, I thought was very, I've, I've used the word transformative and I, I hate to use it because it sounds a little corny, but it seems very true to me. Oh, me too. Like it's one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life. And the people that I met during it are like super special to me, even though like you said, we've never really met. I, I feel like I know you like all of you guys. So, yeah. Well, yeah. And it was, it was funny too, because when I was reading your manuscript and I, I got them in whatever order that we were going to go over them. And I think yours was, it was still pretty early in the class. I think it was yeah. like the second or third day. And so I was reading them in that order and um, it was different from reading them cold the week before, not knowing who these people were mm -hmm. and then getting to know you. And I was like, oh, okay. And listening to you speak and, you know, talking about the other essays and it was a really super cool experience. Yeah. You know, I agree. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, but, and we're, well, I want to talk to you about writing too. Um, you know, but we're uh, just sobriety and recovery and stuff like that. And I, my favorite question is anybody who listens already knows, or one of my favorite questions to start with is, when do you remember alcohol being in your life in the earliest, not necessarily your earliest drunk, but maybe as a child growing up that you were exposed to it? Mm, that's a good question. Not, not where I thought you were going to go with that, but, uh, you know, in, in terms of the whole child aspect of it, because um, I mean, honestly, I was a pretty straight edge uh teenager kid mm -hmm. um you know I was the safety officer in my family the middle child everybody else was black sheeps and I was the white sheep um I I kept everybody in line and took responsibility for everybody so you know I had a pretty like strict relationship with substances being very anti-substance until I got to you know the age of 20 um went away to college and honestly didn't even interact with alcohol until I was what a sophomore junior so late for you know somebody who ended up having the relationship I did have with alcohol um you know yeah I would say it was my first um like a memorable 
mm-hmm. interaction with alcohol was, yeah, when I was 20 at a college party, um, I think when I had this realization that nobody was watching and, and I wasn't being measured against anybody else and I wasn't responsible for anybody else. I wasn't with my family. Uh, I was far from them, you know, and living in a different town for the first time ever. And um, I realized there would be no consequences. So I, um, and I wanted to fit in. I, I went to a school with uh, nobody I knew. Like I didn't go to like the community um, or like the school everybody went to. I went to mm-hmm. somewhere completely different. So I didn't know anybody and I could kind of reinvent myself. So yeah, at a college party, uh, I think it was called Hunch Punch. Some god <laughs> awful like mix and it was like Mountain Dew colored and I have no idea it was in it. Some nasty sure. like well vodka and a number of other things. Um, And I just remember going to bed that night afterward feeling, number one, like I belonged for the first time in my life. Like I fit in and I, I had the sense of relief. Like I, I finally could let go of like all the world on my shoulders, you know, all the responsibility of keeping everybody in line. I could relax about it. And then number two, I remember thinking, oh, me and alcohol, we're going to go together. Like this, this immediately, like I knew it was going to work for me. Um, Yeah. And I never looked back. So, um, um, yeah. And then I, I was just going to say in terms of like when I was a child though, yeah. Like I come from an, a family of alcoholics and um, addicts uh, of various degrees. So very much exposed at a young age, which is I think why I developed such a strong, um, I had very strong emotions either against it or for it, you know? prior to that that first time at that party did you have strong emotions against it because of family um being involved oh yes yeah um you know i the sort of like typical story i think you already know about me is you know we my dad is an alcoholic um and always has been and you know like that's me being the middle child with daddy issues like it's very like typical story you you've heard before and and so I I think I took it upon myself to save my mother from that you know and so mm-hmm. I um I think that the relationship I had with my mother was sort of one of what do you call it being parentified um and sort of having this um having to grow up too fast and take responsibility for her feelings mm-hmm. being married to this alcoholic and so I think that I grew up with very strong anger and yeah um and judgment you know toward my father and then my brother and then my sister who all sort of followed in that um path with various substances so um i felt it was my job to to fix it from an early age until until i didn't anymore and then the you know mind-bogglingly walked into it myself (laughs) yeah yeah, I um, I know very much the feeling of being a child and feeling um, overwhelmed and the need to take on burdens and responsibilities that are, I mean, honestly, as kids, they are far beyond our capabilities. They were for me. I, there was just no things like, you know, um, one of the things that I learned in the program was resentments, what the word means, what they are and stuff like that. And then tracing it back, I had resentments as a kid before I even knew that word existed or what they were. So it was almost as if I'm having to deal with the emotional burden of my father 
at the same time developing resentments in my small brain and not understanding what they are, just feeling angry and frustrated and completely confused about it because, right, here's this person that I have been told and taught is the person who's going to take care of me and who I am supposed to trust and feeling perpetually betrayed or having to protect one of my, you know, like with my mother, feeling that, that, that sense of, of, of needing to protect them and going like, why am I in the middle here? But this is just what I'm supposed to do, right? For me, it was an older sibling. I was the oldest, there's just two of us, but it always felt like, well, that's just what the older sibling does. Mm-hmm. And so these sort of painful moments and, 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 and experiences thinking that, oh, I'm just accepted. And people asking me how I'm doing. My mother would ask me how I'm doing with all this. And I would say, well, I'm fine. It's just how it is. <laughs> and that's a hell of a thing for a kid to just say, right? Because yeah. it's not fine. None of this is fine. Not fair, you know. You know? Not yeah, fair. All the, all the work that I've done, um, you know, in recovery after I, you know, decided to quit drinking, I've like, yeah, I looked back at that, that child that still lives within me, that inner child. And, and I often think like, oh, how unfair, like I, I'm a parent now myself and mm-hmm. I have, you know, uh, a boy and a girl, but I look at my little girl and I think of the responsibilities I was burdened with at that age. She's eight now. And I think, mm-hmm. oh, at, by this time I was already like managing my parents' relationship and um, praying for my father's salvation and, you know, things that like blow my mind because I I try so hard to protect my kids from them. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of healing about that inner child that's ongoing probably forever. And, um, you know, there's different different, um, opinions on you know, the word fair, <laughs> but, but mm-hmm. there's been, it's important to me. It has been important to me to acknowledge like, no, that wasn't right. You know, like I think in, in terms of how the program manages resentment and um, finding our part and all of that, I think that a big part of my healing has been at first to acknowledge like that wasn't right. And that didn't need to happen, you know? Right. I think too. And you talk about it's, it's a hugely important thing. Um, our part, in the resentments that we have, in the damage that we've done in active alcoholism. And I was thinking about this as I was trying to, you know, with 9-11, and I had a lot of thoughts about it and the whole collective trauma that everybody went through, regardless of your level of severity in this country. But that day was extremely traumatic for everybody and Mm -hmm. finding a way to heal from it and to take responsibility for the things that what was what was our part and you say well i had no part in that and digging a little bit deeper and this is you know we as a collective nation had a part of it and so i was trying to make the parallel from that sentiment and that's a very complicated one full of geopolitical um uh just complexities and all kinds of stuff right But then that to my own traumatic experience, the difference is as a kid, I wasn't responsible. I didn't have a part in it other than to be a victim, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the difference between, I found between that childhood trauma and all the stuff that once I had taken my first drink 
and then regardless or not taking responsibility for for the damage that I had done Mm -hmm. so that's that's kind of the difference between it to me is that as a kid I was a complete victim as an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old or even a 14 or a 16-year-old hell even as a 17-year-old graduating high school I was a victim there I had no say in where I lived or what I did I couldn't leave because that would mean being homeless so that's something, you know, when you talk about dealing with your inner child and that, that kid who's still there, like it wasn't fair, yeah. but how, how do, how do you look at it now? You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd say it's a work in progress. And I think, um, you know, initially in, in working the program, I think I did myself a disservice in, in trying to take on more of that responsibility, that eight-year-old responsibility than I needed to, and it takes some time to grow in maturity, I think, (laughs) Um, you know, that being said, I have a little over four years, so I've got some time to grow, but yeah, it's like, we get to re-approach it and um, look with new eyes again and again and take different perspectives uh, of responsibility, Um, but yeah, like, I think um, I'm still exploring what that looks like uh, in terms of forgiveness and, and um, because these are ongoing relationships as well, right? So right. <laughs> it's, think, it's funny, you know, you think you heal something, you think you um, understand it and you think you've forgiven and, and then it can be rewounded or you can find a new angle. And um, mm-hmm. so, you know, the work continues, it's ongoing. <laughs> Yes. Yes, it is. I don't, I mean, I imagine it, it lasts a lifetime, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I try not to be again, forgiveness also for myself for going on. Why haven't you fixed yourself yet? You have right. all the tools. You've had all the time. You've had plenty of sobriety. You need to get this figured out. And I'm like, well, maybe that's not how it works. Like you said, it takes maturity, right? It takes, it actually just takes the span of time to go by and then go, oh, okay, I get it now. Um, so that first college party with the hunch punch, is that what you called it? Yep. I do not yeah. heard that one before. No, never. <laughs> I went to Florida state. So nice. uh, big party school. So, um, you decide this is it. I found it. Like I, even through all of that childhood trauma dealing with alcoholism in the family, um, Finally, I'm going to be able to find something that works for me. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I mean, it makes no sense, right? Like that's where that emotional maturity comes in. Like, you know, I had been parentified, I guess, for lack of another term. Mm -hmm. And I had been grappling with these intense adult emotions from a young age, but that doesn't mean that I was really mature or like understood myself or, you know, just because you carry the weight of the world sort of sort of self-proclaimed savior of everyone uh, doesn't mean that you actually can manage your own emotions. And I just was, you know, full of emotions, full of anger and resentment and fear. And um, yeah, it was just too tempting of a solution. It was too good of a solution for me at the time. Um, you know, I think the other part of growing up in that that sort of chaotic household um, made me an outsider, made me feel like, an outsider my entire life my entire childhood um 
and so finally I had these solutions for connecting with others and feeling like I belonged and that was just defied logic right like they're yeah. everything that it just went out the window and suddenly I was able to be cool or you know I didn't matter <laughs> that I wasn't cool anyway you know it's um and I think more than anything it was it was a tool for escaping my emotions you know um yeah it, if I've learned anything in the last four or so years, it's that I am very intense. <laughs> so <laughs> I needed help with figuring out how to live with that. And um, so, yeah. So how was the rest of college? Was it, was it all fun? Did you have a good time? Was it trouble? No, I, you know, I'm a really boring drunk. I was a really boring drunk. I was not, even still, I was not that fun. You know, I, my idea of fun in college, to, was to occasionally go to like a house party, but then like also leave early. Like I wasn't cool. I, you know, I spent a little while feeling like I fit in with others um, and feeling like sexy and fun and young. And then really quickly within that first year, it turned into me um, drinking uh, one of those giant bottles of wine by myself with a big thing of popcorn and I can't believe it's not butter spray watching John and Kate plus eight on TLC till three in the morning by myself. Like that's not fun. It's not cool, but that's all I wanted. So it just, it, it devolved into that really pretty quickly. Um, and I think, you know, at the time I was, you know, grappling with a lot of really intense life changes. Like my mom got breast cancer. My sister, I found out she was addicted to heroin. Um, about it. My brother was actually a drug dealer. Lots of things sort of fell apart all at once and it, the emotional burden just got bigger and bigger. And so, um, yeah, no, college wasn't necessarily fun. And I wasn't, you know, the kind of drunk that, that I wasn't really a partier. I never have blacked out in my life. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I would drink alone until the wee hours of the morning and then skip classes and um, isolate myself. And, you know, I was in a long distance relationship throughout my entire, you know, um, college career. And I just used that, I think, as an excuse to just shut down. I don't know, like I just didn't go out. And so, um, <clears throat> yeah, no, it, it was really not, not ever a fun, so that was college was drinking alone, isolation. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. I mean, I think the first few years before, you know, I, I, like I said, I didn't um, kind of get into drinking until I was 20. Well, as an 18 and 19 year old, I spent those first few years um, as a Southern Baptist, <laughs> like a pretty, like, you know, uh, college campus ministries and, um, and, made a sorority with a couple other girls, a Christian sorority, which I look back and make, you know, it makes me absolutely nauseous. <laughs> um, but I don't know why, you know, I say that necessarily, but like, it wasn't, um, it was a pretty like stark turn. It was me right. trying really hard to fit in by being good. And then me dropping all of it and like not giving a shit anymore. And, and I think that's also like, uh, where I, decided that, you know, God didn't care about me. Like I tried, I really tried. And then I just stopped trying. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. so 
So yeah, that was college. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the whole God didn't care about me is uh is something <laughs> I have oh, just that. <laughs> yeah, just that. Um, I have felt that I don't know how many times, countless times. I mean, I still sometimes feel that these days where I'm just like, what is this? Where are these, where are these prayers going to? And what is the point of this? And you know, weren't there supposed to be promises here? Somebody's breaking their promises. And I mean, ultimately it ends up being me, <laughs> right? When I it actually takes, look at the things that I'm angry about. It takes a lot of resilience. You're like, still, I still have to go back to this stupid thing. That's, oh. mm. it's like, you know, we, we want to arrive somewhere and like have relief, but no, it's constant work. It's constant, like maintenance. Yeah. And like, God, I, you know, the world these days really asks a lot of our, that resilience to be able to like, believe that God cares, you know, mm -hmm. that's uh, up the ante really. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you finish college, um, mm -hmm. and you are still isolating drinking. Do you move back? <clears throat> well, I mean, so do you move um, what happens next after college, I guess, is the, is the question. Sure. Yeah. I, um, I ended up moving in with my high school sweetheart who had, you know, was in the long-term relationship mm -hmm. throughout college. And we'd been together since just about 9-11 in 2001 um, when I was a freshman and he was a sophomore in high school. And anyway, so I moved in with him. He went to uh, UF, two and a half hours away, um, rival schools. And um I sort of feel like I thrust myself onto, onto that, you know, him, he, he was getting ready to start his career. And I, uh, you know, I went to college for music um, and I wanted to be a record producer and a performer. And I did some really cool stuff in college, like not just drinking. I, I you know, I, I produced concerts and stuff for the university and met pe members of Earth, Wind and Fire. Like I had, you know, I had some cool stuff too, but like um, I had these big dreams about what I thought my life was gonna look like. And um, I kind of just dumped them all in lieu of safety, you know, with my high school sweetheart. So I moved out, um, moved in with him and continued to drink have, you know, I had the same habits. Um, you know, I tried my hand at getting a couple of jobs, not at all in the music industry. <laughs> um, and the depression just kind of got deeper and deeper. And then um, sort of the story goes, because we come, you know, we came from a Christian background and we're feeling pressure, um, like we were living in sin. And, right. you know, I didn't want to be that girl, I guess. Um, we got married moved across the country, bought a house, had a baby, and then another baby. And so it, it just that fast, like within a year and a half, like it just, um, and I, you know, kept up the same habits when I was pregnant, both times I did not drink, mm -hmm. um, but went right back to it, you know, not as hard, um, immediately, but it escalated fairly quickly because, I still couldn't deal with my emotions. And hey, now that you're a mom, emotions are even bigger or like, you know, the scaries are even scarier. And um, so, yeah, I, you know, they kept the habit up. I was drinking um, every single day by myself. For, I mean, my husband was there, but, you know, playing video games or whatever, like, right, I was thinking, right. you know, like, um, 
or working or whatever. And um, yep, I was drinking wine pretty much every single day and upwards of two bottles. Um, you know, the black box where you can't keep track anymore, but I knew it was mm -hmm. like more than six or mm -hmm. seven glasses. And so, you know, I just, um, I felt so much shame, but I didn't think it would ever, I was ever going to be capable of stopping. So, um, you know, I, I did that for almost a decade. You know, I started drinking at 20 and I quit at 30. So that, that decade was just all, me feeling sorry for myself yeah, and um, yeah, not managing my emotions or even acknowledging that I had any. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's too, that's, it's about numbing it. It's about, right. We're, we're, we're fraught with, or we're, we're filled with, um, with terror and sadness and shame and guilt. And I am not good enough. And what did we say? God, God has given up on me. God doesn't, what, what was the phrase? Yeah. Doesn't, um, God doesn't not, care about me. Or... God, God doesn't care about me. And so yeah. I might as well drink. And then that's just, then we feel this all over again. And then you wake up and you're hungover in that circle of hell. And I know that sounds a little hyperbolic, but it really does feel that way when you go, I can't imagine, I can't imagine being able to stop. Because for a long time for me, I was very proud of it. And I was like, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is how I go. And you can get out of the way or you can get on board because we're going to have a good time at the expense of everyone and everything, including myself. Mm. And near the end, it became that isolation, the cyclical hell. I can't stop this. I kind of feel like I want to, and I have no idea how. And um, so in that relationship, you are, and when you talk about being in the same house as someone, I didn't, I kind of had a sim, somewhat similar experience, but I was never married, but it's, it's, it's amazing how isolating it can be, even if you are with someone and you're living with someone and you have built or tried to build a relationship with someone and um, how much the alcohol takes away because we're not dealing with any of the things that we've been carrying around inside of us, you know? Yeah. It's that arrested development for sure. Like in terms of just my own development and like stunted relationships. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, you know, I'm still married to this person uh, very happily, but not without a problem. And, and I will say that like in the last four years of recovery or sobriety or whatever, um, we, it's like meeting all over, you know, it's like, um, and God knows if we would have ended up together if I wasn't drinking, you know, um, there's probably a lot of things I, I accepted and he accepted that we, neither one of us should have. Um, I'm very mm. grateful to be here now with him and have these kids in this life. But, um, and to, you know, I know that's not the case that a lot of relationships, make it through that transition from alcoholism into recovery. Um, so I'm very grateful that I have somebody in my life who is willing to kind of grow with me um, and likes me enough to, to meet me all over as I'm meeting myself again. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, but it, that is also to say that we don't, I don't still behave like, I don't still isolate myself because I do. I, I, you know, 
um, I still sometimes feel like I can turn into a stranger in my own home or like avoid my feelings. So, um, you know, but now it, it comes up behind me a lot quicker. <laughs> like I can only get away with it for so long before I'm like, ah, oh, crap. Well, the, it's, it's the, it's the, um, I don't know what the, what the word would be, but it, yeah, it, it comes around quicker. It, um, it's just not the right word. The ricochet, re- right? The ricochet. Like, yeah. You go, I was going to say refractory, but that's not oh, the that's right. Good. Is that, no, does think, that work? I think that works. That's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, the refractory period gets shorter and shorter as we go yeah. along in sobriety. Right. We go like, oh man, this is, this is really miserable. And I, and you're like, well, wait a second. We know what to do with this. Damn it. Damn it. I can't, I can't be miserable. Right. Yeah, that draw yeah. is so strong. It is whether you're drinking or not. So, I mean, certainly there's no shortage of other behaviors in sobriety that I can't get hung up on. And, um, mm-hmm. so, so in this time of black box mm. and isolation, um, were there, was there any, what was the moment where you said, okay, enough is enough is enough. Were there many of them? Was there one of them? Yeah. I mean, I think it was one of those many moments from honestly day one, um, where I made that choice to be like, I'm about this. Um, it came immediately with, a shame, you know, with shame. I, I, um, I, I, I'm one of those people who has like a high bottom and, um, one of those lines you hear in meetings that's like, you know, the elevator goes all the way down, but you don't have to go with it or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. and I definitely didn't because I think I had, this sounds kind of weird to say, but the privilege of watching other people or, you know, in my life that I'm very close to continue to do that. So, and I, I, I think living with the pain of, you know, being a child of an alcoholic, and then also having my own kids, like the consequences for me um, seemed very immediate. Yeah. That I knew I had to, I, ha- I didn't want to live with that because I, I think the deeper you go, the harder it is to get out of that shame. And so, yeah, I didn't have like um, one moment. Um, I had, you know, I had one probably moment, but then it took me a couple months to, really realized like, oh shit, it's gone too far. You know, I went to, to uh, travel for my 30th birthday um, to meet my mom and sister. We were going to go on a cruise. We did go on a cruise and it was an absolute shit show. I'll tell you that. Um, but it was the first time traveling alone as an adult, like, or well, ever, I guess then, you know, um, it certainly felt like footloose and fancy free without kids for the first time in like six years. Um, and so I sat down at the airport bar and had a couple glasses of wine while I waited for my flight. Cause I can do what I want. It was an evening flight. And then I almost missed the flight and that's not like me. I'm very like with <laughs> it and responsible. Um, even when I was drinking, you know, I didn't have a lot of consequences cause I was still sort of like the good kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I almost missed my flight and then I get on the flight and I'm sitting next to two people kind of my age and that are sort of in the same mindset. And we drank the entire flight and we got yelled at by this person in front of us. They're like, it's a red eye flight. Like, can you have some decency? And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> um, I'd never behaved that way before. Um, 
I was very embarrassed because, you know, before it was either I was alone or I was among other people drinking and partying, but I was here, I was in the space of like adults <laughs> just trying to get from one place to another. And I was acting out and I was embarrassed. And so I, you know, but I drank the entire night on this airplane and then showed up in Florida still drunk at 6.30 AM in the morning. And I had never done anything like that. And I had to, um, you know, I, I went, to get on the cruise ship and fell asleep in the um, in the waiting area, and my mom had to like come to my aid, and I, I was just it, I felt very out of character, which I know sounds like really not a dramatic story at all <laughs> compared okay. to what you hear. But for me, like I I, I think my um, being that sort of middle child white sheep of the family I was like oh my god I behaved badly <laughs> like um I can't live with myself I I think that it just goes to say that like I didn't take any risks when I was drinking that's like you know I I was very safe I stayed I stayed home I um and then as soon as I did, like the consequences felt like, oh, I actually, it, it just was thrown in my face. Like, oh, yeah. you actually are a mess. Uh, and you would have seen that a long time ago had you left the house. Right. Um, you had created so, a perfect little bubble and then that bubble got burst. Yeah, even just slightly. I mean, I think that a lot of people would be like, it's cool, we're having fun, it's party weekend, but I was just... I didn't like what I saw. And so, you know, but then I continued to drink for the rest of the summer. Um, and, and then my husband left for a couple weeks to go on this amazing trip. He went to, um, on a motorcycle trip from, from Colorado to Alaska through Canada for like a mm -hmm. week, like just on his motorcycle with his dad, um, and left me here with the kids. And I freaked out. I panicked. I wanted to go with him. I wanted, I didn't want to be left here. Um, and I mean, like looking back, it could have been like a minor experience, right? Like, but I just remember feeling inner terror, right? Like outwardly, I don't think it was that big of a deal. I was like, oh, you want to go? I get that. That makes sense. Of course, who wouldn't want to go? But we're, really what it was internally was me feeling terror to be alone and and then and also watching him have this epic adventure and feeling like so small and so limited and realizing that I was never going to get to be that or have that or like live any kind of adventure doing what I was doing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Again, it was just kind of like my behavior put next to others made me feel um, different and and then anyway, so, uh, you know, he, I, I couldn't pull it off. I didn't get my passport and um, didn't end up getting to go with him. And um, by the time he got back, I, I had woken up alone enough times. And I, I don't know, you probably can relate to this, maybe not, but like, I've heard it from a lot of other alcoholics is that waking up in the morning and the first thoughts that come to your head are like, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. Um, yeah. And I remember yes. that, that morning, that last morning I, I woke up and I was like, the first thought that came to my head was, I am so depressed. 
Like who thinks that the first thing in the morning, I guess people who are depressed, but mm-hmm. I just was sick of waking up like that. So um, I remember I just worked up the courage. I somehow, because somebody mm-hmm. else, you know, you read things from people, um, you know, some of our favorite writers who inspire you. You know, one of the people that inspired me so much was Rich Roll, actually. I know you're mm-hmm. probably familiar with him and I, I read his book. And so um, I realized that like, if I was going to have what I wanted, I, I needed to just own it. And so anyway, I, um, I, I sat across from my husband and, and said, I think I've got a problem when he had, you know, just returned home. And I think I've got a problem. And I don't think he would have ever said anything about me having a problem. I don't think it was a problem as far as he was concerned. Um, but yeah, then, I mean, I haven't had a drink since that was August 10th, 2017. Um, And yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> um, <clears throat> wow. So you just recently celebrated four years this last month. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I mean, that's great. And I don't think I, I, it almost feels sometimes when I, when I talk to people that there's this sense of, I don't know, survivor's guilt about having a high bottom. Yeah, and, and I, I live in a very small town and I was getting kind of burned out on the meeting I was going to and even the series of meetings in the same place because it was the same people all the time. And so, which is great. And it's really important, I think, to find a group of people that you can feel community with. And and there's a lot of good years of sobriety. And so I'm not diminishing that, but I started branching out and I was, where's another meeting? Where's another meeting? And I didn't realize what this farm was that I went out to and I'm driving out to this like isolated countryside and it was a rehab center mm-hmm. and cause something, something farms. Right. And I get in there and we're all sitting outside. This is many years ago and everyone's sharing. And I'm still at the point where I'm not sharing almost never. Like I have to be forced into it. Somebody has to call me out by name and then I'll say something and it will be brief and all that. But at this particular meeting, and I didn't share at this particular meeting, but this was the very first time, uh, because it was a rehab center, there were people there that I was not going to meet in at the community center at the church basement. And this guy got up and he started speaking and he had just gotten out of prison over the last six years for vehicular manslaughter because he was drunk behind the wheel. And I don't remember all the specifics, but I just remember it hitting home and going, oh my God, that that could be you. Also feeling, oh my God, that doesn't have to be you. And so there's definitely that sort of, well, I'm at first it's always like, well, I'm doing fine, right? Like I'm doing okay. That I'm at least I'm not that guy. But it was, it was the epiphany was more it's okay to learn lessons from these people's experiences and it doesn't have, I don't have to have that survivor survivor's guilt about, Oh, I was just a garden variety drunk. I was, I was, I had a high bottom, you know? So it doesn't, it doesn't diminish your pain, right? Your suffering was still there. Yeah. I'm learning that. I have learned a lot about that. I mean, I think that's been like one of the biggest, um, obstacles for me in recovery is figuring out my relationship with it. Um, 
and dealing with the imposter syndrome big time. Mm -hmm. Like who, (laughs) what a weird um, experience to be like going to meetings and being like, I'm not an alcoholic enough to not even feel like you could belong there. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is ridiculous. But yeah, you hear stories of people. I mean, the ones that really got me were the women who, whose kids were taken away. Like that, that breaks my heart because I have little kids and, and that's my pain point. That's my pain point. Um, to think that I hurt my children or could have hurt my children. I mean, I'll inevitably hurt them whether I'm drinking or not, but at least I, (laughs) at least I, I could put that down and, and that's something for sure. But yeah, feeling like, um, I don't have to have this heartbreaking story necessarily. Um, I don't have to have huge consequences. And then also like, I, and I have a couple friends who have this experience as well, who have sort of high bottoms and um, are like, are we really alcoholics? Are we, um, do we really need to quit? And, you know, like there's that, mm-hmm. I think even people with, um, you know, low bottoms can struggle with that for sure. Right. Like I'm not as bad as that guy. Right. right. <laughs> so maybe I don't have a problem and, but I don't want to go there. And, and I guess like what I was kind of describing before is that like on the outside, these things don't necessarily look like turbulent and and they're not even really story worthy (laughs) like but for me my inner world was terrible yeah I mean I felt so much shame and lived such a small careful sad little life and um I was betraying myself on a daily basis um and so I and I think that um I I've had the the gift of getting to work with some incredible women in the program um, who mm-hmm. have taught me that all of these stories matter and that representation matters because I can't tell you um, what it means to me to meet another woman or man that that has a similar story. Um, it just there's something about that validation that um, like. I think it's a spectrum, right? It's not black and white. And like mm-hmm. with alcoholics, we have to, to work hard on like being able to see the world that way uh, in, in a spectrum in gray tones. And um, just because, yeah, I don't have huge consequences doesn't mean I need to be drinking. I, I think um, now that I've come to that sort of, I mean, it's probably really naive to say like, I've got it figured out. I'm never going to want to drink again. No doubt that's not true. But, um, you know, I'm feeling very recently like, um, I can say without a shadow of a doubt that I, drinking has nothing for me and, and substances cannot solve my problems. And I know that. And I didn't know that for a few years. I had In a lot sobriety, of you mean? Yeah. 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 I think I, um, thank God for therapy <laughs> because I don't know what I would have figured out if I, uh-huh. if I would have figured it out. But like, I think I, I, I really did have a problem with that imposter syndrome. Um, and I needed to take ownership of my drinking and separate it from my father's and um, to realize it belonged to me and my sobriety belonged to me and it's worth, you know, um, it's just a different group of challenges. I, and I can, uh, certainly am grateful that I didn't make a huge mess and that um, my kids probably will never know better. They were young enough to not understand, hopefully. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, what a, what a, what a blessing, you know, there, what a, Mm. because I, I, you know, I talked to my, 
my best friend Jerry do the podcast with, and you know, he has a daughter. And I remember nights where they had the kid, they would come over, we would all party at the house. We just we stopped going out to bars because they had a kid and we still wanted to hang out. Mm-hmm. So we'd party at the house and they'd bring the kid over and they had this little baby infant on the couch and we'd all hang out and drink and have a good time and laugh and smoke cigarettes out on the porch, you know, and whatever. And he says the same thing where he's like, I'm so glad she doesn't have to remember this other person. And I think it makes a huge difference. And also the complexities of something else you just said about my, my alcoholism, my drinking is not my father's. Disconnecting the two, knowing that I'm not just my, that me, like I'm not just my dad, right? I'm not just... Right. You have your own set of emotional, like we are incredibly complex and um, dynamic. There's so many factors that play into it. And um, I think that's another thing that I will say, thank God for therapy for, because I, being that sort of savior figure in my family um, Mm -hmm. for, for my entire life, even within my drinking career, I think um, I went through a really dark period in sobriety where I questioned whether or not my, you know, getting sober was me trying to save my family. Mm. It wasn't about me. It was me once again, thinking that if I could just be good enough that I could save them, you know, um, and it's gotten, you know, at times for my family, incredibly bleak, you know, um, my sister struggles with, um, she's overdosed and on, you know, heroin and fentanyl and stuff. And, and, um, you know, my father abuses, pain pills and like it's it's a pretty messy household and um and yet like these things are all on the same level they're all the same pain you know like I, I'm not different I still behaved that way as well and so uh, you know it, that's probably something I'm going to be trying to understand for the rest of my life and I cannot separate those things because I am that person that grew up as a savior of my family and I do want to save them I'll never not want to save them um but I've had to do a lot of work around, you know, creating emotional boundaries and um, separating yeah. that for myself and for my kids. Yeah, it's complex. <laughs> the pro- I mean, the, the, the program teaches us that we cannot, right? You can't go, you can't force somebody and you can't help somebody who doesn't want help. Mm-hmm. And so at least on the flip side, right? The, the, the Al-Anon part, but it's all sort of in there. I mean, it goes far more in, in depth there, but um, that's something that I have had to deal with too, with friends, not to the extent or as close as you with your family, but that idea of, well, you're just going to have to let them do what they want to do. And um, there's not much that you can do about it. And I, I, I certainly am not going to bring it up because it's only going to exacerbate things, make people angry, more resentful and go deeper into the hole. And I don't want them to be deeper into the hole. So I kind of go, okay, well, just going to stay the course, do my thing, focus on what I need and um, set a good example and be available whenever they're ready. And that's a really hard thing to do when you want to see people be happy and healthy. That, and I mean, I think I had like the additional layer to that because you know logically I can I can understand all of those things and, and think that that's what I'm doing and then 
you know, it sneaks up on you. You're like, oh, guess what? That motive was uh, because you thought you could save them. You didn't do that for your, because you're taking responsibility for yourself or like owning mm. your own story. You you didn't know it at the time, but really you thought like you could fix everything. So, yeah. so it surprises me. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think what you said though is just staying the course. And, and of course I want to, you know, be available. Um, if and when others need me, but I also had a lot of boundaries to learn because I'm the person that yeah. will sacrifice um, my well-being for everyone else. And so, yeah, in summary, complex. <laughs> yes. What about what about the God thing coming from, you know, you talked earlier about growing up Southern Baptist. And then you also, you know, you said I was trying to be good and bad and moralizing these choices around alcohol when we come to find out that maybe we didn't always have a choice in it and that we were somehow inherently wired differently and hooked in that. So you have this, this Southern Baptist idea of God. And then on the other side of 10 years of drinking, how does that, how does that change or develop or create your sense of a higher power now in sobriety, which we know is complex and difficult and not always um, very easy to understand. Yeah, not, not always concrete or no, describable. Thank you, yes. Um, yeah, just a, that <laughs> question, wow, big. Um, I mean, yeah, so I come from this sort of, yeah, Southern Baptist um, purity culture, uh, my family wasn't that, um, but I found that in friendship and then um, I made sense there. So I, I, I gave it myself all over to it. Um, and my high school sweetheart's family was incredibly religious. And so uh, wanting to be accepted in that family, I bought in. And so um, internalized all the sort of societal ideas of good and bad and, and sort of these Christian ideas. Um, and there's a lot of shame there as well, right? <laughs> like a ton of it. Um, and I think um, it was, there was always that cognitive dissonance at all times from the beginning of like, the same cognitive dissonance that's required with drinking, right? Like I know that this isn't the truth of who I am, but I'm gonna do this so that I can belong. Mm -hmm. I can be yes. accepted. And so really the same thing at play in terms of religion and um, religion and God being kind of separate things. Because um, I don't know that God really played into it as, you know, I think mm. it was more so acceptance and the so social components of religion and less about God. And so um, I don't think I developed a higher power or really like began to explore what that meant to me um, until the latter end of my drinking career. And, and I do really believe I did pray, you know, to this God that I didn't, I used to call it, um, drunk dialing Jesus. Like the only time I would talk to God or reach out was when I had been drinking. Uh -huh. Um, I would only call God when I was drunk because that's when I would, yeah, I felt desperate and sad. And at the end, once it was time to be done and, you know, in the evening and I was trying to fall asleep, you know, as you continue to drink through the night, you're like, this is great. And then it's done and you're like, ah, crap. Um, and that's when I would reach out to whatever higher power. And I do believe that that higher power was what I leaned on, what I reached out for 
when I was finally able to get sober, mm-hmm. even though I had such a limited understanding of, of that. Um, but I think, uh, you know, with all the shame of sort of organized religion, um, specifically the Southern Baptist <laughs> organized religion, um, and, and the complexities of sort of growing up in a misogynistic um, household. And like, so me internalizing all these like feminist shame ideas, you know, these um, who I am is bad um, or weak or whatever. I um, I had a lot of resentment towards God, even though I still sought God, mm-hmm. if that made sense. Um, of course, I'm sure it does. What what could make more sense than that? Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I did the first six months of my sobriety without AA. I just quit cold turkey and I was like, you know, I'm just going to white knuckle it, they say, and um, used exercise to to survive. And then I met somebody in the fitness industry who is also sober, invited me to a meeting and um, the rest is history. Um, I had no idea how much I needed that. And I think for the, you know, exercise was my higher power Mm -hmm. for a while. And honestly can still be that. Um, I think I'm in a period of my life right now that I'm using it again, Um, but we'll see how that goes. (laughs) But um, yeah, exercise was my higher power for sure. And then the community of you know, the program was my higher power initially. Um, and going through the steps and, and kind of doing that surrender moment was terrifying. And mm. um, I wish I could say it was a relief, but it was it was terrifying <laughs> because I think I was so traumatized and resentful still because I hadn't done any of the real work yet um, that I didn't it felt like a step backwards in some ways. Um, I've since done this, you know, the steps a few times and, and now no longer feel <laughs> that sort of free fall backwards, but I guess maybe that is surrender, right? Like, um, anyway, I mean, and, and the high, my higher power has evolved so many different times. Um, and I would say, I've, I've read so many incredible books that are not necessarily like program official that have helped me expand the idea. And I, but I would say like my understanding of, of God is only realized in, in my interaction with others um, and in telling my truth. And um, I think the only reason that I am able to tell my truth and connect with others and feel God is because of the program and, and learning to be honest and um, vulnerable and real and, forgive myself and all of that. So, um, yeah, I think I'm much more aligned with like a Buddhist God (laughs) now, not that they're different, but like my, you know, so was Bill W on some, some levels. So, I mean, it's all whatever it's all, he also took LSD. Right. But so, (laughs) so it's all whatever works, I think. And those Buddhist ideals are just, how would you describe them? I don't mean to. I don't mean to press you here. I apologize oh, if I'm being too okay. But hey, that's what we're doing here. I'm just here. curious. Yeah, yeah. I need to be hounded. Um, those Buddhist principles, I think. Um, let's see. Sort of letting go of the idea of good and bad, and sort of letting like learn. I think that that's 
the gray area, gray shades of gray in terms like, um, you know, Christianity felt very black and white. That Christian God felt very black and white, good or bad, evil um, mm-hmm. and good. Uh, and, and sort of like the more Buddhist approaches, accepting uh, how things are, um, which I think, you know, the program and, and the big book sort of talks a lot about, right? Like practicing acceptance, having curiosity. Um, and it sort of feels like it changes the race. You know, if we're going to use a metaphor, like the Christian um, Christian God sort of felt like in running a marathon, the payoff was the finish line versus you know, if the Buddhist approach would be, it's just like each step of the way and like paying attention to how you feel in the moment and the struggle is the journey. And I mean, it helps me, I think, um, accept the ups and downs a little easier. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it gives me a different context for who I am. Um, and I don't have to measure myself in the same ways and, um, and I think that there's still plenty of Christian ideas that I that make a lot of sense to me. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like in general, I would say my higher power has a lot less to do with religion or anybody else's idea of God than it it does with my own. If that makes sense, yes, I don't know. absolutely. I'm sure you could, like write this down clearer, but it doesn't. It's not going to come out. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's, you know, that could be for the next, the next book. I, I, I found that all of this stuff and I'm probably, you know, I've been journaling now consistently almost every single day, except for during our workshop in June, where I completely forgot because we'd get up in the morning, do, you know, do class. And then there was plenty of reading and writing. And then I would go through the whole day and be like, I forgot to write in my journal today. And it would be like the next morning or whatever, but, um, and a lot of these things come up. And so they're in chunks and pieces all over the place, you know, trying mm-hmm. to figure it out. And so, um, I think that's great. I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's as clear as most of us can find, <laughs> clear as right. Clear. And you talk about my exercise with my higher power for a while. And I think we can bounce from different things, not necessarily bounce. Like we're just give myself up to running. And I've done that for sure. And, but I've also not worried about how many miles I have to do or all the excruciating miles ahead. It's like, let's just work on this step right here. Let's be right in this moment, how my foot feels right now and do that over and over a thousand times. (laughs) Right. Seriously. That's, that's very, right. Like that mindfulness. And so, yeah. And part of me is just trying to, you know, mitigate the pain and suffering in my head of that's, the running. That's what we're doing here, man. <laughs> right? That's all we're doing in life is mitigating. <clears throat> um, life is suffering. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I think that's great. I and um <clears throat> and so also speaking of writing and as a writer, um was and has it always been something you have done even while in active alcoholism? Ooh, good question. Um I mean, I think like as a child, I was a writer. Um, Mm -hmm. My mom says that I was, um, I I probably used it to, you know, as a higher power (laughs) to manage my emotions and understand myself and make sense of the world when I was struggling. Um, But I always, yeah, I had that sort of like 
poet's sentiment, even as a child. Um, and I wrote a, a bunch in college as well. Um, I don't think I wrote like at all hmm. in my, during my drinking. Um, or if I did, it sucked and I was totally in ego. And um, I mean, I definitely took some writing classes in college and did not, um, I mean, I just flirted with my professors and looked at the spark notes, you know, like I didn't yeah. really like, so, so no, I think um, these things were, are, it's one or the other, right? right. Uh, and so, I mean, yeah, I, I am a nonfiction writer, which is to say, I just write about myself all the time <laughs> and, uh, or if I, you know the people in my life who've wronged me so watch out mm -hmm. uh, um so yeah it's been an, a very important tool um and which is why this this workshop this past summer was so meaningful to have that validation of like yeah you are a writer um because you can write but without having somebody else read it it's it sometimes feels hard to call yourself that you know a writer um so yeah, it was incredibly validating of my experience, both because I needed, and, and maybe this is something that I shouldn't admit, but a part of me needed to be identified that way, I think. Um, it felt very good to, to as a stay-at-home mom, you know, um, to get to call myself an artist, but also like um, to, to get to write about because it's like a memoir writing and nonfiction to get to write about these incredibly um, intimate, vulnerable things and have other people read them and, and comment on them. Like what a crazy experience was that? It was very crazy. And, yeah. you know, I think about it now and not only so to have written all of these things and to feel a certain way about it and then to hand it over to a dozen people and have them tear it to shreds and for good cause right but yeah. it's a little bit um it's a little bit unsettling and i guess that's part of this this whole process of growing as a writer right like if you i, I told my therapist like if i ever believe for a second that i am not brave remind me that i just wrote my entire like vulnerable sad story and and then like you know the professor mishka like somebody who whose writing has meant an incredible amount to me and my sobriety journey to read it and to write about it like so all these incredible like gifted writers but also him and to be like dude yeah. i totally want to punch your dad in the face and i'm like what <laughs> like how validating is that man yeah it's very validating and I think it's important. And it's, it's also, I mean, because I, I got the same treatment with yeah. mine and um, it was, you know, I think one of the things from his critique in mine was there's a lot of, there's a lot of good in here and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah. And it was like, he's like saying, honestly, here are all of the deep and intrinsic flaws in this thing. And if you want to create something good, you know, and, and what I got from it is that, well, you can either work on this and work on this and work on this, or perhaps pull the things from this and discard the rest. And that made a lot of sense to me just because in sobriety and in the program, take these things that work and discard the rest. Right. And as I, as I go on, I tend to 
collect more of the things in sobriety that I was discarding before and go, okay, maybe I have some use for that now. Maybe I have some use for that now. And because it was, I was still, again, very judgmental of the whole thing. And I have, I still have issues with the program and it's problematic and it's wording and it's language that Mm -hmm. nobody wants to change. And it's almost a hundred years old. And, you know, so stuff like that, whereas here I am in writing going, I need to throw this out. I need to rework this. This is a terrible idea. I'm so glad somebody was completely baffled and confused about this because it made so much sense to me. And what I didn't understand is, and what I often don't understand is that there's this whole internal monologue. And if I'm only giving you a chunk of it on the page, you're not, you don't have the backstory of my lived experience to understand this one sentence. So of course it's confusing to you. So it was a huge, it was an awesome experience. So many like huge life lessons in just mm-hmm. what you just said. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, yeah, what, what a gift that we get to sort of practice, put into practice all these things that we've been able to learn in sobriety and, mm-hmm. and like be challenged in that way through this writing workshop. Um, yeah, like for me, for example, like, learning to stand up for myself or learning to accept criticism. Oh my God, I'm so bad at accepting criticism. Like it will destroy me. And, and then like getting to put my stuff in front of strangers and then yeah, sit there with your mouth closed while they're like this, oh, somebody said something like that was an ugly sentence. And I'm like, (laughs) so ouch. But like also being able to be like, yeah, no, you're not wrong about that. And like put into practice the things that I wouldn't have been able to um, ride, you know, before. While drinking, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so much of my writing in, 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 in drinking was just an absolute mess. And a lot of these pages, I can find old notebooks where I'll have started something. Mm-hmm. And then it's just a series of unintelligible curse words of me just, and it's just the, the, the absolute like raw nerve drunk, frustration and rage and nothing else mm-hmm. and all so the resentment. like yeah uh, all the resentment but absolutely inarticulate and vulgar mm. Mm. and um n- certainly not ready for uh publication but um <laughs> so, but it was it's you know it's a good learning experience and and, I, and especially and i cannot say it enough and i i finally got a guy who was struggling and he's back in rehab and he had a relapse And I would tell him and I would say, hey, man, just go get a notebook at CVS. I don't care how big or how small it doesn't. Your words don't have to be. They're not there for anyone but you. You know, he's like, I can't write. And I was like, well, you can. They teach you that in like, you know, kindergarten. So it's fine. Like you this idea that it has to be perfect and full formed coming out of the gate is preposterous. And to accept that in sobriety and in writing is really hard because we want to be immediately validated. And we, I mean, we were over those two weeks because part of being a writer is being a bad writer too. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then what, what does it matter if, you know, you're a good writer or a bad writer and like in the presence of yourself. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it was a gift to have, you know, to be bad in front of others and mm-hmm. to be able to like sleep at night still. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, like I, I mean, to sort of like 
summarize the whole what writing has meant to me in sobriety. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, we get, we all get sober for different things. We have these ideas about what life's going to look like when we do. Right. And some people, I mean, have really wacky ideas and I'm one of those people, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to tell the story of like, you know, it, my piece in this writing workshop was about my, my relationship with horses and what they, that meant to me about my identity. And, um, I really believed that like, if I could just stop drinking, I could have my horse, you know what I mean? That little girl dream of having my own horse. Cause that's as much as I could muster at the time. Like right. I didn't have the perspective to be like, there are people in this world who are hungry, Dana. <laughs> like what it just an incredibly like selfish, small thing to want, but it meant something to me. And it was enough at the time to be like, that's worth it. And you probably are, you know, right. Like you, you can have what you want if you take it. Um, and in the last four years, I have not, I, I tried, you know, so hard to make that work and it was not for me. Um, and so that was hard to like sort of mourn the loss of that dream. Um, and so I tried my hand at so many other things, you know, being a fitness professional and trying, you know, like I would see other people who were like living their best lives and I think I'll just do what they do. And so I tried all these different things and I kept hitting a wall because I kept, um, sort of getting to this place of realizing I was being inauthentic for myself. I wasn't following my own path. I was trying to achieve somebody else's happiness. And because I'm sober, I yeah. cannot do that. I can't get away with it. I can't lie to myself or betray myself anymore. And so I asked myself after a few years of really like struggling to find myself, um, you know, if I was really, if I really believed in myself and I really believed I was worthy um, to have, you know, real happiness and, and fulfillment, I would, what would I really be doing? What would I really try for? Would I try to be a bodybuilder? Would I try to be, you know, a horse trainer? No, none of those things. And what came out was, no, I would try to be a writer. Like, if I was really brave, I would write, uh, which maybe sounds silly, but I, it was profound to me at the time because I was like, no. what are you even doing messing around with this other stuff then? Like, it's really hard to believe in yourself enough to invest in being creative and invest in, in your art form or like building a life because no one's going to believe in you. Like to say that I needed that validation to be called a writer because I'm a stay at home mom. And I, I think that like, um, I didn't feel worthy of calling myself an artist. Like how silly is that? But, um, but yeah, I mean, just in the last year, this stupid last year in this pandemic, this ridiculous life we're living now, I, I yeah, I put feelers out there and I tried, you know, to be vulnerable and I wrote on social media and I met people on the internet and here I am, you know, now like actually writing and, um, you know, getting accepted into programs that like are truly dreams come true. Like I would never have believed I could have been accepted into this workshop. I have no idea what I was doing there. Um, or like getting to talk on this podcast right now, what even is this life? <laughs> But I just, I guess all that to say is that like um, writing, I think whether you want to do it for your career or like wrap your identity up in it, or you just want to write in a journal, it's, it's incredibly powerful for understanding, you know, yourself and yeah. the journey you're on. And no, you don't need to be educated or like know what you're doing or just, um, I mean, it's the same thing that they sort of push in, in the program is that like all stories need to be told and every story matters and you know so 
that, yeah, I mean, writing is incredibly important to me, whether anyone reads it or not, but I'm certainly grateful for what it's meant to me in this last year, so. Agreed, agreed, absolutely. I'm so glad that I kept all those journals because it actually was the whole reason I was able to come up with a couple of new pieces that we, that I shared in the, yeah. in the workshop, right? Which were I, incredible. Oh, thank you. I just, I was like, I need to go find that. Where's that journal entry? And so I like pulled them all out and I laid them all out. And I was like, I think it was this month and this year. And it was like such a cool thing, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So I, and I just, I guess my final thing, and I thank you for your time here. Uh, this has been awesome to, uh, to talk to you, but what about somebody who's thinking about getting sober or newly sober and is in a similar situation of the high bottom, it's not that bad kind of thing? What do you, what would you, what kind of advice would you give to them? Small or big, it doesn't, I'm the, you're not, you're, you know what I mean? Like, it, I don't have to like change someone's life right now, but, uh, but you might. I might, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, what advice would I give? You know what, just what's changed my life more than anything is the, the people that I've met. Um, and kind of like I mentioned, being able to be vulnerable with others who've yeah. had a similar experience, who understand. Um, I think I wrote, I posted a tweet a couple weeks back or something about like, if you feel, if you're constantly like feeling like the weirdo or like um, an outsider, then you just haven't found your people yet, but they are out there and it's possible to feel like you belong somewhere. Just keep going. Don't get stuck in a place where you don't feel like you fit. So yeah, I guess that would be my, you know, my general advice is that like, if you can tell the truth about your experience, you're going to find people who who um, share that, who value that, who love you for who you are. Like, don't be afraid to tell the truth about um, who you are, how you feel. And um, I mean, that sounds like such a cheesy little bumper sticker to put on the end of this, but like, that's we it. Need, I mean, yeah, that's sort those. of, yeah. I mean, like the sort of, I have super mixed feelings about the program for sure. Who doesn't? But uh, what I will say without uh, hesitation is it's absolutely been, the community has been paramount to my survival and um and that's why i keep sticking around and that's why i keep telling my story as a lot of people would be just like nauseated to be that vulnerable on social media to be like i'm a drunk mm -hmm. for the entire world to see that but that's when i get the most payback like that's when i feel the closest to god so i think um yeah just uh, be brave. Be brave. Perfect. Yeah. That's the bumper sticker. Be brave. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, thank you so much. If somebody wants to follow you on Twitter or somewhere else, where can they, can they find oh, you? Geez, nobody they... wants to follow me on Twitter. <laughs> uh, a... So yeah, I mean, I would be so tickled. So my Twitter handle, I guess, is um, Dana E. Copeland. Uh, so it's D-A-Y-N-A-E-C-O-P-E-L-A-N-D. Perfect. And uh, I'm on Instagram a good amount, too much. Um, too much, yeah. And uh, right. yeah, on there, I'm just Dana Copeland, so. Perfect. Well, yeah. thank you so much. It was awesome to get to know you thank even you. more. And yeah, um, yeah I, uh, I didn't even get a chance to ask you about your Alaska trip and all that stuff, but you know. Um, another time. Another time. <laughs> yeah. All right, thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening. Our music, as always, is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 
And you can reach us at A is for alcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Yeah. <laughs>